This, the third episode of A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I am Danny, and today's episode is a deep dive into the history of the Germanic languages. I have the privilege to be hosting Professor George Walkden, a leading academic in historical linguistics and syntax, and a doyen of the Germanic. When it comes to the work that I personally do, he quite literally wrote the book. So, this is a treat for me and for all. Right, so for this third episode of the show, I have the enormous pleasure and privilege to be here with Professor George Walkton. Professor Walkton is currently Professor of Linguistics at the University of Constance in Germany on the beautiful shores of Lake Constance, previously of the University of Manchester and of Cambridge. Professor Walkton's focus is on historical linguistics, on syntax, things like word order, specifically within the Germanic family of languages. It's a broad group of languages, including German and Dutch and English. And he is joining me today to talk about one member of that family that he has a particular fondness for. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. What is a language that you love? So thank you very much for having me, Danny. And the language that I'm going to be talking about today is Old Saxon. Excellent. Okay, Old Saxon. Well, I'm happy already because it's got the word old in it. But this is perhaps, this is a name for the language that needs some unpacking. This is a language that's not spoken today. Uh, we'll get into perhaps whether that's accurate or not. I suppose the first thing is we need to get an idea of time. Uh, pinning down a language chronologically is always difficult, but as someone within the field, when are people speaking Old Saxon, roughly? Roughly speaking, for Old Saxon, we're talking about 800 AD to approximately 1050, 1100 AD. So early Middle Ages. Excellent. So it's contemporaneous with things like Old English? Old English, Old High German, yeah, Old French. Uh, many of the languages that Jacob Grimm of the Brothers Grimm decided to call old in the 19th century, he split things into Old, Middle and Modern. And one of the interesting questions then is what happened to Middle Saxon and to uh, Modern Saxon? Yeah, exactly. That is my next question. Um, where is it today? Well, there is no language that people usually refer to using those names, but it is quite widely thought that Old Saxon is the ancestor of what today we would call Low German or Plattdeutsch, Plattdeutsch. It's got many names, Niederdeutsch in German. And probably that needs some contextualization too, because it's got this low in the name mm, and yes. uh, low you know, you might be thinking, oh, okay, is this some sort of, you know, non-standard or vulgar or sort of proletarian German or something? Uh, that's not actually where the term low comes from at all in this context. People talk about low German and high German, and these are actually geographical terms. So where I'm from, or where I'm based at the University of Constance, there you have high German varieties spoken. And if you are around Constance, you can understand why it's called High German, because the land that you are on is very high up. There are mountains everywhere. Whereas in the Low German speaking area, which is in the north of Germany, everything's pretty flat, just like it is in the Netherlands. Um, so the high and low really relates to that. And there's a dividing line that runs somewhere around 
Düsseldorf, the uh, modern city of Düsseldorf, more precisely in a suburb called Benrath. Somewhere around this specific suburb of Benrath, there is a line. And north of this line, people say things like apple. So for what we in English called apple would also be in low German, an apple. Um, whereas in standard German, anyone who studied that will know it's apfel with this sound. And uh, that distinction, among other distinctions, is the main thing that sets low German varieties apart from high German varieties, uh, that low German varieties don't share this sound change that turns all of the pers in a very early stage of high German into pfers. So I suppose then that north of that line, low German, it will have many similarities to Dutch, to English, perhaps things that it shares with Dutch and English that it doesn't share with high German to the south, despite being part of the modern day country of Germany. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the really, really interesting things about studying this part of the world, uh, because linguists tend to talk about West Germanic languages. So the West Germanic languages are at least the big ones that people have heard of are English, Dutch, Yiddish, German, Scots, and Frisian, to draw the net quite broadly. Afrikaans as well, spoken in South Africa, descended broadly from Dutch. And one of the interesting things about West Germanic from a historical perspective is it's not always straightforward to understand how these languages were actually related to each other. Like, is, is Dutch more closely related, say, to English than it is to German? One renowned Dutch linguist actually uh, talked about Dutch as the filling in a sandwich. So he uses this expression, the Germanic sandwich. There's actually a conference series called Germanic Sandwich. And um, here the idea is that English and German are basically the bread, uh, and Dutch is the, is the filling in the middle. And I like to think of Old Saxon as kind of being the, I don't know, the, the margarine in the sandwich or the butter, because without that, everything is a bit dry, really. Right. I love it. And I feel slightly hungry as well. Okay, so that's very helpful. And yeah, I can understand that this term of Germanic needs a lot of unpacking. These languages need unpacking their relationship to one another. And then you have separately international borders, which we then place on geographical areas and muddle the whole linguistic picture as well. I think there really isn't so much of a difference between what you find on one side of the Dutch-German border, uh, with, you know, Dutch on one side, low German on the next. It's not that much of a difference. No, there really isn't. And um, this is really worth remembering. I think British people are often a bit predisposed. I know I certainly was when I was growing up to think of national borders as something quite natural and immutable, simply because we're on an island and the border is mostly just the sea. But when you look at other Germanic languages and other countries on the continent, that is very often not the case. The whole concept of what we think of as Germany today is actually a relatively modern invention. It's something that was effectively created in its modern form in the 19th century. So a lot of these borders, these, these national borders are actually uh, quite artificial and from a linguistic perspective in particular. Um, so it was very, it's very much the case. I spent some time living in Aachen at one point in my life. This is right on the border with Belgium, with the Netherlands, um, at the area they call the Dreiländereck, the three countries triangle, uh, or three, three country corner. And yeah, the varieties of German that are spoken on the German side of the border happen to be very similar to the varieties of Dutch spoken on the Dutch side of the border and the varieties of Flemish spoken on the uh, Belgian side of the border. And uh, of course, that's no accident because it's the borders that are new. The languages have been there 
for donkey's ears. Yes, and the different names that we have for the different types of language in the three countries creates this impression of them being very different, but they're really not. It's very fluid. And I think that studying Low German and its older form, Old Saxon, really gives you a sense of the Germanic languages as being a big, one big continuum, one big way of gradual changes across geography, not working neatly within the borders of the modern day countries. Exactly. And if I may, another case study that illustrates that quite nicely is the varieties of German that are spoken in Constance, where I, where I live, what you call Alemannic varieties of German. Um, and these varieties are almost identical to the Swiss varieties that are spoken just to the south across the border. Now, those people can understand each other very easily. Even though the people to the north are in Germany and the people to the south are in Switzerland, those guys would have a lot easier time understanding each other than, say, the Alemannic speakers would understanding people who are from the border near Belgium. Right? Because that's a huge geographical distance and a huge linguistic distance too, even within the same quote-unquote language. Right. And there's a whole state in between those two, and yet, you know, they get grouped together. So yeah, I think this is really good, and I really think that Old Saxon can be like a tonic or perhaps an antidote to our way of thinking about languages, these very separate things. So winding back the clock then to that period when Old Saxon is being spoken, um, who is speaking it, and where are they within Europe today? Who are these people, and how do we know about this language? I mean, being a historical language, we're very much dependent on historical sources, written sources, so medieval manuscripts and the like. Could you give us an impression of how much information, how much data do we have for Old Saxon? Old Saxon, the easy way of answering the first part of that question is to say that the people who spoke Old Saxon were the Old Saxons. And we have records of people called that in the early medieval period. They found themselves on the losing side of a war. Um, they were very much being attacked, persecuted by uh, Charlemagne, by the Franks, um, also speakers of a Germanic language at the time, but uh, not particularly friendly ones as far as the Old Saxons were concerned. And that is largely what we know about them from this, from this early period. Um, we also know that they were originally not Christians. The documents that we have, that I'll come back to in a second, all originate in a Christian context because Christianity was very much associated with writing and writing was very much associated with Christianity during this period. Uh, but originally that wouldn't have been the case. And these people would have worshipped what we can approximately call the Germanic pantheon. These days, mostly, I guess you'd know them from Marvel films, so Thor and Odin and friends. These were the kind of uh, deities that would have been worshipped uh, in this Saxon-speaking area, which is more or less where they, where Low German is spoken today. So northern Germany, the area that is is often called Lower Saxony or Niedersachsen in particular. More precisely, I guess you could say northwest Germany. Um, nowadays, it's also spoken all the way across to the border with Poland. But that was a, a, actually a slightly more recent development that spread to the east happened during the later medieval period. Okay, sources then. You know, tell us, what does it look like? And I'm also curious, we have this word Saxon, and this is well known to people within the UK because of the Angles and Saxons um, who spoke Old English. What is it like to compare Old Saxon to other early Germanic languages like Old High German, like Old English? Is it very different? Would you say that the speakers and writers of these languages would have had trouble understanding each other? Or is there actually a lot of intelligibility at this early point in time? 
Those are some really interesting questions. Um, so to start with the documents, the main text that we have from Old Saxon is a text called the Heliand, which is a poetic text. It's an epic poem. And that links already to this tradition that is also shared with speakers of Old High German and, uh, and speakers of Old English, uh, speakers of Old Norse as well, of having epic poetry using alliterative verse. So when every word starts with the same consonant. So Peter Piper picked a peck of, I shouldn't have committed to saying that. <laughs> but there we go. So you have, instead of rhyme, instead of end rhyme, like we have in modern poetry, these early Germanic languages tended to have this alliterative poetry, and that's the kind of poetry that the Hiliand is. It's written in this alliterative verse. What's it about? It's about Jesus. It's about, it's a version of the Gospels, but it's what people in, at the time called a Gospel Harmony. I like to think of it as a Gospel mashup. It's basically, you, you take all four of the Gospels and you sort of merge the story together into one coherent narrative. And, and that's what the Hiliand is. And it's a really, really interesting text. And, and the Hiliand on its own is about probably 80% of the Old Saxon that we have. So this one text, which we have in two major manuscripts uh, and a handful of smaller ones. Uh, this is long before printing. So these are handwritten manuscripts that monks would have laboriously transcribed uh, during the early medieval period. But they, they tell this coherent story, and it's a story about, about Jesus. Um, it's perhaps not quite the Jesus that you're familiar with from more vanilla versions of the Gospels, because it's written in this uh, Germanic heroic epic tradition. So, uh, and the Germanic heroic epic tradition, the most uh, comparable text, is probably Beowulf. Some of you will have will have heard of Beowulf, about a uh, hero who defeats monsters. And in the culture of the peoples who spoke Germanic at that time, warriorhood, masculinity, dominance, these were all quite powerful concepts. And you can see them echoed in both of these texts. So in, in Beowulf, also in the Old Saxon Hiliand, except that those of you, again, who know the Bible a little bit, Jesus is not exactly a prototypically dominant masculine warrior character. In fact, his, his, his kind of whole thing is not doing violence, right, for the most part. And, you know, so, so the version of the Heliand does mostly not, also not do violence, but, uh, he's very much presented in this mold of, of Germanic warrior hero. And you might, one interesting question is why, right? Why would they, would they do it like this? And the obvious answer and the answer that people have given at the time is that this poem, this epic poem was composed as a part of the effort to Christianize the Saxons in the first place, right? So you've, you know, you've got these people, you want to convert them to your side. How do you do that? Um, you take their style of, of art essentially and tell your type of story within it. And so, for instance, uh, you get lots of things that are sort of a little bit incongruous. So um, in the in the Bible, there is a scene where they're about to take Jesus and uh, Peter gets angry and slashes off someone's ear. And then Jesus says, don't do that. This is there in the Hiliand as well, but it's padded out. It's this glorious scene where Peter could no longer restrain himself and he lashed out with furious rage. I think probably at this point, the, the composer of the poem is getting excited that finally we've got some violence that we can actually talk about in this, uh, this poem, right? 
so yeah, it's, it's this beautiful text with also lots of other Germanic elements. So there's a couple of dragons that show up, um, just in passing, you know, as you do. Yeah. Fascinating document. And as you say, just very much a product of that transition period from paganism to Christianity, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. So people have talked about it in terms of Christianizing the, the Germanic peoples. People have also talked about it the other way around as, as a Germanicizing Christianity in a way, right? Through all of these, all of these elements. And it's always, you know, it's, it's pretty much always been true that, um, the early missionaries in the, in the first millennium, they were very much working with what they had. They took elements of local culture, customs, rituals, and adopted them and adapted them to fit a Christian context, for better or for worse. And the Heliant is part of that kind of rich cultural picture that we have of, of this era. Amazing. So Old Saxon not only has such to offer us in terms of linguistics, but also for all its historical context as well. That's fascinating. Yeah. And in linguistic terms, to come back to something that you mentioned early on, we can be pretty confident that um, all of the early West Germanic languages would have been mutually intelligible at this point to some degree. Right. And of course, mutual intelligibility, you know, can can I understand this language, can they understand me, is not an either-or thing, right? Often it depends how hard you're trying, it depends how slowly you're speaking. So we, we have to talk about that in terms of degrees, but um, it seems fairly clear that these languages would have been mutually intelligible. And one piece of evidence for this that we have is that sometimes it seems like the early manuscripts of the Germanic languages were composed by a scribe who was more familiar with one of the other languages. So, for instance, the C manuscript of Old Saxon has some very, very clear Old English influences in it. Uh, and that really, I think, tells us that people were at the very least reading each other's stuff in the monastic context. And yeah, it makes sense because we're going back, you know, quite a few centuries to this particular period in time where all the lines between the different languages are not yet sharp. Mm. And we're seeing a lot of movement across geographical and linguistic borders. And I know that in your own work, you've mentioned that there are possible sort of linguistic innovations that have spread across this continuum of languages throughout Germanic, you know, starting perhaps in the south and then reaching up all the way to the north. So as I said earlier, I think that Old Saxon is a really good antidote to sort of inaccurate way of thinking about languages at this time. One interesting thought experiment here is to think about what could have happened with Old Saxon if political history had gone a little bit differently. So the Old Saxon is also called Old Low German for obvious reasons. The, the next stage that we have is called Middle Low German, and Middle Low German is associated with the Hanseatic League. A bunch of very powerful merchants all around the North Sea and the Baltic, kind of the late medieval equivalent of Amazon. They could get you what you needed. Middle Low German was their language. And that meant that it was a very powerful language. It was a very widespread language. We have much more in terms of records of Middle Low German. I won't say too much about it because someone might want to come on this podcast and talk about Middle Low German at a later date. But it was a very prestigious language, a very powerful language, a very widely spoken language. It's left its mark on, for instance, the Scandinavian languages because of this trade. It's left its mark on some of the Slavic languages too, all around this North Sea, Baltic Sea area. And the Hanseatic League, for various reasons, declined after about 1500. And today, Low German isn't really thought of as a language. You know, I've, I've talked about it as a linguistic variety. Most people these days would probably call it a dialect. Now, I mean, as we know as linguists, there isn't a linguistic criterion for language versus dialect. These are ultimately political terms. You know, a language is a dialect with an army and a navy, as people have put it. But if the Hanseatic League had continued being powerful, if it had continued to um, dominate the world economic scene as it was doing in around 1400, 
who knows? Mm. But Maybe low German could be the big prestige variety and, and high German could be a kind of historical footnote like low German is today. As, as you say, we see this great switch that perhaps if you wind back the clock to the middle low German period, nobody would have predicted, nobody would have seen it coming. This great switch towards the prestige of high German, which becomes the basis for the standard language that we all learn in schools today. Would that switch be the Reformation? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it was... It's, it's partly the economically the sort of the, the, the slight decline of the north and, and the rise of the central and southern parts of what's now Germany during that time. I think the Reformation plays a big, big role in it too. Uh, people talk about Luther's works as particularly influential for the standardization of German, for the sense of this is our language, this is a common core that we speak. And Luther's works were composed in a variety of, of of central German, which comes under the high German umbrella. It has these pfers rather than the pers that I was talking about earlier on. So that was definitely part of it. Also things like the history of printing and the history of political power more broadly within, within the area. So if history had just gone a bit differently, we'd all know a lot more Saxon today. Well, that's a great introduction to Old Saxon, to its wider Germanic context. Wonderful. Okay, so we're in a really good position now with regards to Old Saxon, what this language is, um, how we know about it. But really now, I want to turn to you. What's your relationship towards this language? Um, when did you first hear about it? How did you come to study it? I started out, as a lot of people do with linguistics, I started out with it not really knowing what it was. I came into linguistics thinking, oh, languages are pretty cool. I'd studied German and French at school. I thought they were pretty fun and uh, wanted to keep on learning more about them. I quite liked the fact that in, um, in, in distinction to, for instance, literary studies, there tended to be a right and wrong answer with things like linguistics. You know, you could use the right case ending or the wrong case ending or the right verbal conjugation or the wrong one. And <laughs> since then, I've obviously learned that things are a little bit more complicated than that. But back then, it appealed to my sense of right and wrong and of, uh, of sort of mathematical elegance. It was a bit like, you know, languages were always a bit like kind of crossword puzzles or Sudoku or something for me. I, that was how I got into them. And I think anyone looking at me back then from where I am now would have said, aha, okay, this person is going to end up becoming a linguist because that's what linguists do, even though I didn't really know what linguistics was at the time. I got into it when I was at university because I had a really excellent teacher for intro to Germanic, to German linguistics, which was Sheila Watts. And I just loved her classes. She'd set us these brilliant assignments. One of them was, this was on the exam. We got given a text in a German dialect. We weren't told what the dialect was. We had to figure it out. And we had to justify our answer. We had to say, okay, what's going on? What words are they using? What sounds are they using? What syntax are they using that sets them apart as being from this particular area? And the more you can narrow it down, the better, you'll, better your grade will be. Um, and I love that kind of thing. You know, that was really, really fun sort of detective work in linguistics. And because I wasn't so much a literature person and because I love this kind of detective work, and these sort of quirky old languages, also because I was a bit of a geek and I liked fantasy and uh, medieval stuff in general. I saw this um, this module on offer called Germanic Philology and jumped at the opportunity. It had not only Old Saxon, also Old High German and Old English, which we've mentioned. It had some Gothic in it as well, which is a whole other thing. It had some Old Norse, 
so language of the Vikings, so to speak. And it was it was glorious. It was um, just what I wanted to be doing. There were only three of us on the module, so it was pretty tiny. And um, but we got to basically just explore these texts. It was like being a kid in a candy shop. Basically, it was uh, it was magnificent. Old Saxon. I very much realized was the kind of the Cinderella of the Germanic languages um, in the sense that it was, it's been neglected. It's, um, you know, there's a huge, huge tradition of in, in England of, of studying the history of English. In Germany, there's a tradition of studying the history of German. But the thing about that is the history of German is considered to be the history of high German for the most part. They barely ever talk about low German at all. And the more I learned about Old Saxon, the more the more this, this seemed to be very weird. And also, you've got this amazing language on your doorstep. Why wouldn't you study it? It makes perfect sense to me. And it must have been so intense, but very enjoyable to be in that first philology class. But, you know, it must have left a good impression. It's shaped your career ever since. So Yeah, absolutely. I've I've continued to work on it. It's it's one of the languages I mean I'm very much what I do is comparative. So I work a lot on the history of English. I work a lot on the history of German as well. I'm mostly focused on the history of the West Germanic languages in my own research. Uh, and in my teaching, I teach a lot of, of history of English and also comparative stuff. Old Saxon has, has always continued to be important. And especially in my research, I have, for instance, built a, a corpus of Old Saxon. So basically, this is a collection of texts um, and annotated so that they, they, these texts are provided with bits of linguistic information that are useful for people doing linguistic research. So you can take a look at these texts and see, ah, okay, you know, where's the verb? Um, that information is, is provided for the user. So that's been my main linguistic contribution, I think, to the study of Old Saxon is uh, building this corpus, which is a kind of fancy electronic edition, basically. Yeah, but what a contribution. I mean, that sort of thing is invaluable to the rest of us linguists who don't want to do that legwork. We can now get on and study it. So, yeah, awesome. And it's freely available for anyone to use. Fantastic. Okay, what's the name? It's called the Helipad. Helipad. So Heliant, as in this is the name of the text, uh, which means something like saviour, and then parsed database. We love a good pun. Excellent. Okay, so now we know so much about yourself and about your personal studies with Old Saxon. Clearly, you are someone who can tell us lots of great things about this language. But if you have to choose something that you're especially enamoured with, what is something that you just love about Old Saxon? Please tell us. I think probably what I love the most about Old Saxon is how old it is, not just in name. So when you look at the other early Germanic languages, um, you look at Old English and uh, on the one hand and Old High German on the other hand, um, you see that Old High German has undergone a bunch of changes. So Old High German, for instance, um, a change I mentioned earlier on was all of the Puz pretty much became either Fuz or Fuz. And that's something that um, happened pretty early in the history of this language from the very earliest Old High German texts we have all, all are all characterized by this, this change. And in general, the consonants change a lot in the early history of, of High German. Uh, and then in Old, in Old English, on the other hand, there is a lot of interesting stuff that happens to the vowels. The vowels in Old English, they, these are developments that have very sort of highfalutin names like palatal diphthongization and breaking and uh, nothing that uh, 
is worth going into in detail here. Uh, but what it means is that the vowels in Old English look very different from the vowels in the other early Germanic languages. Now, Old Saxon doesn't undergo the consonant changes that High German undergoes, and it doesn't undergo the vowel changes that Old English undergoes. So you might think, okay, George is just being weird at this point because he's getting very excited about stuff that didn't happen. But this is precisely for me, because I'm interested in where the Germanic languages came from and how they relate to each other. Old Saxon is a window onto the past. It's actually even older than it looks based on when the texts were written because Old Saxon is quite a conservative variety. It's quite, it's quite close, in, at least in terms of its phonology, in terms of the sound system of the language, to what we imagine early proto-West Germanic, the, the precursor of all of the West Germanic languages to have looked like. It's quite possible that that was true on other levels as well, for instance, the syntax of the language. So Old Saxon is really invaluable from that perspective. It's, it's, a very, uh, it's a language that preserves a lot of interesting things, I think. Makes total sense to me. I mean, you're completely preaching to the choir for me personally. I am thrilled by anything that, as you say, just shines light into prehistory as Old Saxon does, just takes us a little bit further into prehistory beyond what just the sources in that one particular time can tell us. I really find that very thrilling. So, yeah, I can appreciate why Old Saxon holds a special place in your heart. My final question really offers you a chance to just wax lyrical about something else, something that you just think is really, really cool and that you think that people should just know about Old Saxon. So the question is, what would you like the audience at home to know about Old Saxon? In a nutshell, it's picking up on something I mentioned earlier on, which is Old Saxon is not only a language that preserves a lot from its past, it's also a language that could, if political history had gone a little bit differently, have become a major national language of the present day. Uh, and the fact that it didn't is very interesting and I think should cause one to reflect on how powerful it is today to be a nation state, how much the development of nation states since circa 1500 has impacted our understanding of the world and you know and and ultimately how how political but also how arbitrary a lot of the linguistic landscape of the world actually is today that makes perfect sense to me uh, old saxon was just a victim of the accidents of history that it's gone from the great language of the hanseatic league to being thought of as just a oh just a mere dialect of german Wonderful. Okay, well, I think that's a really, really nice and neat point to, to take away. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it, and I think people will have a great response to this. I mean, I've learned a great deal over the past few minutes, so thank you very much. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. My fun fact for this episode concerns terminology and a strange coincidence. A key idea in a linguist's toolkit is that of loanwords. These are words that the speakers of one language adopt from another, and English is crammed full of them. Words like spaghetti, cello, pizza and fresco are all loanwords from Italian, for instance. Yet another kind of word adoption is a calc. This is when one language borrows a word from another, and keeps its meaning, but translates it part for part into native terms. 
So, earworm is a calc of German Ohrwurm, while gospel calcs the good news of the original Greek Evangelion. Here's the thing. In terms of their origins, the word calc is a loanword from French, while the word loanword is a calc from German. That's all from me for now. Thanks for listening. Till the next time. <laughs>